0: Well, friends, we work our way through this hour of worship again. Thank you for joining us, whether you've been part of this church family for decades or it's your first time. We do all of these things to the glory of God, but also every moment in this service is an act of worship. When we sing, when we pray, as we give later on, but also right now as we come to God's Word. And we're in a sermon series that is wrapping up today, trying to explore, not in a uh, systematic sort of way, not in a just a a, a knowledge based of information and not in a uh, doctrine sort of way, but really passionately and personally ex- exploring just who is God. And we often refer to the Godhead, the Trinity, the community of one as God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Spirit. And we've been marching through this three week series again that we wrap up today. If you've missed any of those, you can go on to our YouTube channel. You can look for the Trinity series, God the Son and God the Spirit. I kicked it off two weeks ago as we started this series, starting with God the Son, because Scripture says that it's actually through the Son, the Son of God, that we can actually get to know God. John chapter 1 says this. It says this in Colossians chapter 1, that Jesus is the fullness of God. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. No one knows and no one has seen the Father except for the Son. And the Son has made God the Father, the creator God, known to us. So we started in that week one with God the Son with just this high-flying overview of Scripture, not an exhaustive sort of way, but just to, to give us an appetite to explore in a deeper, richer way of who Jesus is. And last week, Rebecca Bershea Morgan Uh, enlivened us to God's Word and what it says about God the Spirit. And what a great reminder. Did you catch last week? And if you didn't, I want you to watch it because it's so true that in some church and faith contexts, God the Spirit is kind of demoted within the Trinity. We might talk about God the Father or we might talk about God the Son, but we perhaps in some context, maybe in your context growing up, that God the Spirit is de- Emphasize. We need to remind ourselves that there is no hierarchy within the Trinity. A, they are coexisting, three persons in one. This remarkable truth that God doesn't shape shift from one context or one era to the next, but somehow in this mysterious and beautiful but also intimate way, this community of one that invites us into a relationship with God through Jesus the power of the Holy Spirit to be in relationship with God in the fullness of all that God is. So we wrap up today, which by the way, if you are experiencing this live, it also happens to be Father's Day. Now we were in some ways unintentional, but then intentional about this to line this up. We wanted to start with God uh, the Son, but as we get to God the Father again on this Father's Day, it's a great reminder that when we refer to, and as scripture refers to God as Father, couple things here. Uh, that's not the only way that God is referred to, which we will unpack in this sermon. But also, sometimes we can view God through an earthly lens of our experience, our understanding, our perspective of what a human father is. And so in some ways that can help, but in some ways that can also hurt an accurate perspective of who God is. Let's say we grew up in a context where we had a God um, uh, perspective that was shaped by our earthly father in a negative way, where our earthly father, for example, uh, was just hard on us, that was constantly critiquing us, uh, that was constantly uh, just never, never encouraging, uh, that perhaps was uh, never around that was an absentee father. Uh, In some cases, when we have that experience, hardwired into our human experience, hardwired into our, our DNA almost, can be, even if it's under the surface, a view or a reaction to God as father that is influenced by our earthly experience. And as a result, sometimes we can read passages and not understand it through the lens of Jesus, but understand it through our human experience with our human fathers and we see passages where God corrects or disciplines and we react and we and we have a hard time not picturing God in the same way that we picture our father that was hard on us. Or if we pray and we feel like we don't have God responding to us and not there and not present, we can't see. Perhaps if we had an absent father, we can equate that not to the lens of Jesus, but also to have this experience, uh, co-opt who God really is in our lives. And we can think that God is just another absentee father. So what we want to do most of all is enlarge your heart, your mind, to see God in a greater way, as we've been talking each week, a more mysterious and majestic and awe-inspiring sort of way that God becomes bigger in your mind's eye, but also at the same time draws Closer, Because God, before the heavens and the earth were made, Scripture says that God longed to be in relationship with you and set into the motion in God's heart to make that a reality. So why do we call God Father? When we see a lot of other titles throughout Scripture for God being very different, you have God the Creator, God the Provider, God the Sustainer, God the Savior, God the Redeemer. God is king, God is ruler, all all these different things. Why do we refer to God as Father? Well, one of the reasons, and again, not to be exhaustive, we could spend years on this topic, but one of the reasons is that Jesus, God in the flesh that we covered in the first week, whom has made God known to us, most frequently addressed God as Father when Jesus prayed to God. In fact remember when the disciples they asked Jesus Jesus teach us how to pray. Now I quickly want to say that they didn't ask that question because they were novices at praying. These are people that grew up in the Jewish faith. These are people who had grown up surrounded by prayer. Jewish people were a praying people. They had an entire book of the Bible, the Psalms that they prayed. They lived their lives praying. They had morning prayers, they had evening prayers. Prayer saturated every area of their life in the same way that we breathe and perhaps don't even realize how frequently we do it. In the ancient Jewish world, prayer was just as natural as breathing. As they grew up, no food passed their lips and ingested without them first praying, giving thanks to God. They knew how to pray. In the best moments, they knew how to pray. In the hard moments, they knew how to pray when there was loss. When you read the fullness of the Psalms, it covers the breadth and the depth and the height of human experience. In many ways, they prayed much better than most people pray today. So when they asked you the question, teach us how to pray, they weren't novices. They weren't starting from scratch. But even in their rhythm of life that always included prayer, in their life of having that muscle built up in their life that was so part of who they were because they exercised their faith in prayer and communication to God, they saw in Jesus a way of praying that seemed foreign to them. Jesus constantly was saying, I have come to do the will of the Father. And when Jesus starts his prayer, responding to them, these people who were steeped in prayer, and he says, this is how you should pray, our Father, this prayer that begins with our Father that we have become accustomed to would have been foreign for their ears. Because when you read throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, in fact, there are actually very, 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 very few references to God as Father. There's not a long laundry list of prayers that address God as Father in the Old Testament. In the Psalms, there's only one reference to God as Father, and it's not from the psalmist and it's in a prayer, but it's in reference to a king who references God as Father. And so in so many ways, I want to pause here and for us to understand this truth, that, that God the Father isn't something that has always been part of the natural expression of a prayer life of God's people beginning in Genesis throughout the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures. And that's why Jesus is so key. Because Jesus reveals the fullness of who God is in ways that perhaps many millennia of faith among the Jewish people didn't quite catch. And yet, all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, there are little hints at proofs of God's people relating to God as Father. Many commentators and scholars and historians have actually pointed out and have said, you know, it's interesting, when you study the the other religious beliefs and worldviews that exist in the ancient worlds. Many of those ancient beliefs and religious systems and worldviews, for example, the the Canaanite uh, belief system that most of the the Jewish people lived uh, in knowledge of or in the land of Canaan were surrounded by, and their belief system was this, that there were many gods And that those gods procreated and gave life to all of humanity. And so in those cultish religions, uh, they viewed God as a father, in some cases, God as a mother. And we were, in a sense, God's progeny in those worldviews. And so there was this hesitance, many scholars believe, in the early Jewish faith to confuse God's people And so very rarely was there language of God as Father. There was prayer of God as provider, as creator, as sustainer. And yet, remarkably, many names in the Old Testament actually are names that speak to God being Father. You've heard of the word uh, metaphor. There's another word, it's theophor. It is this idea that... uh, We have an understanding of God through the words that we use. In the Hebrew language, again, language of the Old Testament, the the word for father was ab, A-B, transliterated. And if you added an I at the end of it, A-B-I, abi, that was my father. And so all of these names of biblical characters who actually lived, who perhaps went about their lives, not praying to God as Father, but in every moment where someone said their name, it was a reminder for them that God is their Father. I want to give you a couple examples uh, of these names. Phenomenal book. I I read this in seminary. I I dust this off the shelf often. It's uh, Knowing God the Father Through the Old Testament and remarkable to be able to see names like this. So Abiel in 1 Samuel 9.1 means, literally the name is God is my father. Eliab in 1 Samuel 16.6 literally means my God is father. Joab literally means Yahweh is father. You can read that in 2 Samuel 8.16. Abijah, which we are introduced to in 2 Chronicles 29.1, literally means Yahweh is my father. Again, Yahweh was the name, or Hashem, the name, or Adonai, the Lord. This is the name that the angel of the Lord, God, gave to Moses in the burning bush, I am. And they use that name Yahweh. Abimelech in Judges 9-1 literally means my father is king. There's so many more. Obadiah, Elijah, Azariah, Adonijah, all these names communicate Meaning, you know, we we live in a world where many of the names of our friends, we have no idea their original meaning. Maybe your name is Christopher. Maybe you have friends who are named Christopher. Maybe a family member who is named Christopher. The the Theophoric meaning of Christopher is Christ-bearer. Did you know that? Uh, Did you also know that Theodore and Dorothy are actually the same name, one for a a a man and one for a woman. Theodore and Dorothy, you can hear that Theodore, Dorothy, they, they actually mean the exact same thing. They both mean gift of God. So we go throughout our lives and we have an understanding of names and we don't perhaps know the meaning of the names and perhaps you've read scripture and you've gotten to some of these names that are hard to pronounce and many of those names have a meaning. Many of those names actually meant God is Father. So there was this background, there was this sense of God's people having an acknowledgement and understanding of God as Father. And actually there were, we'll say four different significant occasions where God explicitly refers to God's self as Father. And I want to walk through each of these four areas because it gives us a window into what it means for God to be Father. And then we're going to end on what it means for God to not just be any old father, but to be a holy father. So the four things that we're going to walk through in a moment remind us that God is a father who carries us. Number two, that God is a father who corrects us. Number three, that God is a father who has compassion for us. And number four, and I can't hang with the the alliteration here, different letter to start. It's not a C. God is the Father who adopts us. So if you have your Bibles, we'd love for you to take a look at this one passage, a remarkable passage that, you know, I read many times, but didn't fully grasp until a very significant moment in my life. Let me read the passage for you before we get there. It's Deuteronomy chapter one, verses 30 through 31. And it says this, The Lord your God, who is going before you, will fight for you as God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the desert. There you saw how the Lord, your God, carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. Now, the occasion for Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 30 and 31, is a speech that Moses gives to the nation of Israel after they have spent 40 long years in the desert where there's been miracles, where there's been provision, where God has met them, where God has provided for them, where God has given them the law, where God reminds them of their identity, where God uh, instates and and puts into place the the priestly and even the sacrificial system. And right before they're about to cross into the promised land, which was a long far cry away from all of their centuries in slavery in Egypt, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he says to the whole nation of Israel, remember how God carried you through the desert as a father carries his son. That verse, that concept, so came to life the moment I held my son, Judah, for the first time. Now, it's it's hard to even wrap language around that experience. There was the long journey of infertility that my wife and I had experienced, and some miraculous things that enabled us to get to that moment where I got to hold for the first time my flesh and my blood, uh, this biological child of mine that we had just named Judah. When I held him for the first time, all of a sudden something clicked, something happened in me. And it was almost as if, it's, it's so hard to explain. It. It's almost as if uh, this big curtain to the nature of God's character as father was unveiled for me because in that moment, all of these truths rushed into my heart, rushed into my mind. I thought in that moment as I, as I held my son for the first time, I was overwhelmed with love. I was filled with tears that his existence came for me. What a gift that is to know in that moment that there was this creative act that enabled this child to be born, to be carried in my hands in that moment. The remarkable thing is I was filled with so much love for my son, and that was before he had done anything for me. He hadn't written me any Father's Day cards yet, hadn't given me any gift hadn't even acknowledged me and said, I just, you know, I thank you that you're my father. He hadn't done anything. He was just there. He was crying and I loved him. And in that moment, I I, I realized he had no idea who I was. He had no concept of who I was. And yet I was filled with so much love for my son as I carried him. And it wasn't dependent upon his actions towards me. I loved him first before he could ever love me. I knew him before he ever knew me. I I prayed for him and I longed for him even before he was created and even born. This remarkable experience personally unlocked this passage, that that experience is a, a sneak peek into the type of relationship that God longs for his people. That yes, every single human being on the planet has been made in the image of God. None of us exist apart from our creator God. As we learned in the first week of the sermon series, who The agent of that creation, the catalyst for that creation is God the Son, the Word of God that speaks all things into existence as we see in Genesis 2, that God fashions into and breathes life into these first humans. This remarkable, remarkable, mysterious, beautiful truth that no human being exists apart from God, that this truth that we are not some cosmic accident, that there's no reason for our existence other than the intelligent, benevolent, loving personal act of our Creator that longs to make God's self known to us most fully through Jesus, but also, as we discover here, to know that God longs to have a familial relationship with us. Now, what's remarkable, let me just pause here for a moment. There are a couple passages in the Hebrew Scriptures that also speak to and give the image of God as mother. Now, before you call me a heretic, this is found in Scripture. I'm just sharing with you what is shared in Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaks about God uh, in the same way of a a woman who is pregnant with her child, and also in the same way of of a mother nursing her child. So this complex, rich, beautiful imagery exists as it says in Genesis 1:26 and 27, and God said, let us make humankind in our image. And so God made them male and female. God created them. And so this, this beautiful picture, which is us trying to put human language and God accommodating to us in human language for us to understand, says through Moses, the Lord your God carried you through the desert in the same way that a father carries a son. Friends, you need to know that your, your creator longs to carry you and does carry you even if you don't know it. My son, who is now 10 years old, has come to know and come to understand in a very limited way, in a very partial way, in a very um, small way, a portion of the fullness of all that I have done to carry him over his 10 years. And so his sliver of knowledge of how I've carried him doesn't limit the actual fact of how I've carried him. And it's made me realize that though I might have a very small view of how God carries me through times of trial, I think about the time when my younger brother died of a drug overdose. When I think about that accidental moment that was so hard to get through, I look back on that moment and I did, I experienced God carrying me through it. I experienced God carrying my wife and I through that season of infertility. I realized that God carries me through the very difficult seasons of leading a church in Los Angeles in the 21st century, being faithful to God and God's call in my life and our life. God carries me through these seasons. I realized that God carries me even in the greatest moments and the beautiful moments of my life, but that is still just a sliver, very slice of all the ways and how God has carried me. And that I would. In those moments, have faith and believe and reflect. And as Moses says, to look back on the history of our lives and to realize that God has carried us in the same way that a father carries his son. There is a sense of protection, of provision, of support, of accomplishing that which a child could not. I was able in that moment to hand uh, my child to my wife, his mom. He wasn't able in his own strength to get to his mom. I had to literally carry him over. After that, I carried him over to the doctor. We carried him to his first uh, doctor's appointment. We carried him uh, to his car seat and then take him to his home. We carry him from place to place in the same way. We don't have the strength to carry ourselves through life. And yet God says, I'm carrying you believe that trust in me on not only this day on this father's day but every day of your life god as our father carries us but also god corrects us we see throughout the again the uh, the hebrew scriptures that god is a god that loves us enough to step in and to course correct us to instruct us to to not only prevent us from Destruction, but also prevent us from destroying others and to live a life that gets off track from the life that God longs for us. In many ways, when God corrects and when God instructs and when God disciplines, it's from a place of love. Again, that's why it's so important for us to never view God only through an earthly lens because sometimes in our lives, we've perhaps, we've experienced correction we've experienced instruction, we've experienced discipline that doesn't come from a place of love, but comes from a place of anger, of frustration, bad temper. You see, God as Father, which we'll get to in a moment, as our Holy Father, is altogether different, who never corrects or instructs or disciplines us from a place of a bad temper, from anger, from frustration. It is all out of Love. A passage that speaks to this, for example, is in uh, Deuteronomy uh, 8 2 through 5. Again, this is Moses speaking. He says, This, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. This is the same speech that he gives to the nation of Israel after he just said, Remember how God carried you like a father carries a son. He continues on. Chapter 8 says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your hearts, Whether or not you would keep his commands, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had ever known before to teach you that humanity does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during those 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a father disciplines his son, so the Lord your God has disciplined you. All from a place of love, all from a place of correction, all from a longing for the best of a child. Proverbs 3, 11, and 12 say it this way. My son, this is Solomon writing. He says in Proverbs, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent God's rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son whom God delights in. Now there's this experience. Again, I'm going to speak from personal experience as I've raised not just one, but now two boys alongside my wife. There have been seasons where I have needed to, and my wife has needed to step in and correct and instruct and discipline our two boys. And the remarkable thing is that we approach our children as parents approaching children, not as a boss or a coach approaches their employee or their athlete. You see, a boss or a coach, when their employee or their athlete doesn't measure up, uh, doesn't show up, Uh, doesn't perform at the level that they've been hired to do, that they've been paid to do, that they've been expected to do. There can be a lot of things, including a demotion, firing, sitting on the bench, being cut from the team. Ultimately, the patience of a boss, the patience of a coach ultimately wears out because the perspective of a boss to employ and a coach to an athlete is inherently different than a parent, in this case, a father to a child. You see, when my boys, when they don't love one another and they hit one another and they treat each other, their mom, me, poorly, when they get wrapped up in things, same things that we assume as adults, we still get wrapped up into in those moments. My heart doesn't want to demote them to kick them out, my heart, which is just a shadow, is just a fraction, is nowhere close to the perfect, holy love of God the Father. In those moments, my heart actually enlarges for my boys. And when I step in to correct, to instruct, to to rebuke in a loving way, again, I'm not perfect. I don't know perfectly the way God does it perfectly, but when I step in those moments and I instruct, when I correct, when I discipline, it is because I love them. I know in that moment that I, I can see so much more for them. They can learn from my mistakes. I can share with them at their level. And I don't do this perfectly. Sometimes I can get frustrated. Sometimes it's temper, sometimes I'm angry and I have to be reminded that in those moments that I do this out of love. It would be unloving for me to just look the other way when my younger son hits my older son. When my older son takes something, rips it out of the hand of my younger son, it is—it's out of love and a reminder that as we go through life, on one hand, there is a natural consequence that happens when we live our lives out of alignment for how God has designed us. When we treat other people like objects, when we sacrifice integrity to put ourselves ahead, uh, when we use. Uh, our positions in a relationship or in a workplace as leverage over other people. When we begin to treat God as an assistant to us rather than us serving God in those moments when we get out of alignment, when we begin to, to go off in a way that, that grieves the heart of God, 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 I believe God's heart enlarges for us because it says here that, remember, the Lord disciplines those whom God loves. And there are consequences for our behavior that we experience on one hand. You know, when we, when we uh, treat other people like objects, relationally we erode the trust in that relationship and we just naturally experience the consequence to that. I believe that in the fabric of human existence that many of the consequences that we have are put into place because God longs to help us move back into, no, this doesn't feel right. I've got to make some changes. And that doesn't mean that every consequence is God somehow disciplining. Sometimes we're just dumb and foolish, right? And things just happen. But there is this sense, and I want you to catch this, that God as Father corrects disciplines from a place of love, from a place of longing for us to experience all that God has for us. When God put into place the law as a framework to understand God knew in that moment that we would never measure up. In the New Testament, it says that that was put into place as a instructor, as a teacher, that ultimately makes us realize that we need a Savior who fulfills the law perfectly. We discover in the first week, Jesus did that. He didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. So God doesn't just carry us. God also corrects us. Third, God is a God who comforts us, who has compassion. For us, I want you to hear this passage. This is a longer uh, passage. This is Psalm 103, uh, verses 8 through 14. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. God will not always accuse, nor will God harbor God's anger forever. God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities for as high as the heavens are above the earth. So great is God's love for us. And for those who fear him, not in a negative fear, but who respect, who honor, who worship him. As far as the east is from the west, so far God has removed our sin, our transgressions from us. I love that language because you can measure north to south, north pole to south pole, right? It's it's an actual measured distance, but you can't measure how far the east is from the west. As you go along the equator, it never ends. And it's this image that was given in the ancient world without fully knowing the earth is round, that the Spirit of God spoke to that truth and said, as far as infinity is, God removes from you your sins. That's how much God loves you. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear God. For God knows how we are formed. God remembers that we originally are from dust gives us life. He meets us in the midst of our heartache. He meets us in the midst of our brokenness. Perhaps you've had an earthly experience where you haven't experienced comfort from a father, where you haven't experienced comfort or compassion from a father. Maybe you're a father and you realize that you haven't measured up as one who is comforting, who is compassionate. We have a holy father, which we'll get to the word holy in a moment, who is altogether different, who is perfect in his comfort, who is perfect in his compassion, that we should never see the compassion of Christ and God the Father and God the Spirit through the lens of our earthly fathers, but through that which is revealed in Scripture. And it inspires us to be people that let that compassion and comfort flow to other people I love whenever I sit down with people in preparation for a memorial service, whenever they've experienced loss, I remind them of 2 Corinthians chapter one, where it says, praise be to the God of all compassion and comfort, who comforts us in our time of trouble so that we can comfort others with the same comfort that God first gave us. There is this river of comfort, this river of compassion that God the Father longs to flow through you. We're not called to be reservoirs that just take it in and hold it up for ourselves but that as we receive God's compassion and his comfort in ways that we're not even fully aware of, sometimes God brings that comfort and compassion through people. I believe that God has all the means at God's disposal to bring that comfort, to bring that compassion in ways that we're aware of, ways that we're not aware of. And that we would be people who would receive that and and share that with other people as we receive that from God. Fourth, God is a father who doesn't just carry, who doesn't just correct, who doesn't just, Comfort, but God is a God who adopts us. Remarkable language here. As we get into this passage that is found in Psalm 27, verses 9 through 10, God is speaking here Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. And this is the psalmist speaking, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. So the psalmist, King David is saying, though my mother and father will forsake me, the Lord, God, Yahweh will never forsake me. Some of you might say, well, my parents haven't forsaken me. They're great, they're awesome. They're both here and they, I'm gonna spend today with them. But here's the truth. And I know this is a hard truth to swallow. One day, your parents will forsake you. Eventually, they're going to die. And some of you have already experienced that with one, perhaps both of your parents, and maybe you don't see it as a forsakenness, and it might be odd to say it that way, but ultimately, your parents one day won't be there for you, even unintentionally. And the psalmist is unveiling Perhaps something that we can so take for granted. Our good, our wonderful parents providing for us, caring for us, comforting us, loving us, correcting us. Ultimately, they won't always be there. And we can forget that. We can hide that. We can deny that. We can put that off for another day. But the psalmist speaks to a truth that every human in existence will experience. That though humans will one day not be there for us, the Lord always will. And this is great hope, not just for all humanity, but especially those who have experienced a parent who has abandoned them, who never knew their mother, who never knew their father. And this God isn't just one who just happens to be in a biological relationship, but this is a God as father who chooses to be in relationship. Listen to this passage. It goes on. And it says this, this is in Psalm 68. Sing to God, sing praise to his name. Extol him who rides in the clouds. His name is the Lord and rejoice before him. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in God's holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. God leads forth the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched Land. You need to know that in the ancient world, your security, your life, your value came from your family of origin. And people who were fatherless in an ancient world often ended up with nothing. People who lost their loved ones as a spouse, who became widows, for example, in that society, they lost everything. And there was great hope in the ancient world when this truth was shared that God reveals God's self as one who comes to the fatherless, the one whom society has forgotten about, who doesn't have a family to protect, to provide, to care for, to nurture, to instruct. God is the God who comes, who adopts, who defends, who rescues. In fact, this concept of father who carries, who corrects, who comforts, who adopts, is predicated by that remarkable word holy. You know, we refer to our father as a holy father. I love this word holy. You've heard me preach on it before. I'll just go very quickly. The word holy means a number of things, but it means altogether set apart, altogether unique, altogether incomparable. It's not really accurate to say that holy means moral? Because in the Hebrew Scriptures, it talks about ground being holy. How could ground be moral? It talks about clothes in Leviticus being holy. How could clothes be moral? It talks about utensils that we might eat or utensils that we might write with as being holy, but how could inanimate objects be moral? In fact, you look at the Pharisees and they were the most moral people in the first century. They not only lived up to the law in their mind's eye, they were on full display to how much they lived it, but they were not holy. Jesus looked at them and he says, you aren't holy, even though they were moral, because they weren't set apart, they weren't incomparable, they weren't for a purpose for God, they did it for themselves. Their morality wasn't in service to God as set apart. Their service was that they would be worshipped and looked up to by everybody else. They prayed in public. On the outside, Jesus said that they were clean, but on the inside, they were dirty. There was this sense that Jesus reminds us that holy and moral are not the same thing. So holy father means that this father is altogether different than all the other fathers that have ever been and ever will be. This father is altogether incomparable, that is set apart. And the remarkable thing that there's a lot of attributes of God, God is powerful. God is creator, God is redeemer, sustainer, that God is a stronghold, on and on all these titles of who God is. But the fact is, is that when the angels praise God, then they don't say beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. They don't say powerful, powerful, powerful. They don't say uh, judge, 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 redeemer, redeemer, redeemer. Those are all titles of God. They say, holy, holy, holy. In fact, the holiness, the set-apartness, the uniqueness of God is the thing that is the definer of all the other attributes of God constantly throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. God reveals God's self, saying, there is no other God like me. He says to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, there is no other God besides me. There is no other sustainer like me. There is no other provider like me. There is no other rock like me. There is no other creator like me. There is no other judge like me. There is no other grace giver and forgiver like me. There is none other like me. There is no other father like me because this isn't just a father, a divine father. This is a holy father. So any misunderstanding that we have of God that comes through our earthly experience doesn't change the fact that God is altogether perfect, loving, and within that, just, merciful, true, powerful, consistent, eternal, all-knowing, all-sovereign, all-present, this remarkable beyond the human capacity to comprehend also longs to be with us. There is this passage I'd love for you to read afterwards and just to end here, knowing that this is just a a dot, dot, dot. This is a pause on God the Father because we could spend an eternity uncovering, discovering, knowing what it means for God to be our Father in a beautiful, holy, wonderful way. But in John 17, we have the longest recorded prayer that Jesus prays. This is right before his, his arrest, right before his crucifixion. At the end of his life, he knows what's about to happen. And he, we get this window in, we get to overhear this prayer. And I read a commentary recently, and I never considered this before, that how significant that in the longest prayer that we get of Jesus in the New Testament, in the Scriptures, is in many ways simply just a conversation within the Godhead. You see, God the Son, fully God, is praying to God the Father, fully God. That's a better way to look at it rather than a human being praying to a God. This is a conversation, this is a prayer that God is having within the Godhead, within the tree. There is a conversation happening, the last lengthy conversation that we see in Scripture right before Jesus dies. And what does Jesus talk about? He talks about you and me. We get to overhear the thing that matters most, to so not only God the Son, but God the Father, because this is the reason why God the Father sent God the Son. It was for you and for me. Without reading the whole thing, I just want to pick some selected parts out of this. Jesus starts in John 17:1. After Jesus had spoken these words to his disciples, he looked up to heaven and said, his disciples get to overhear this, and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you. Eternal life isn't just getting to get to heaven one day, to live in the clouds as, as has been popularly said. No, no, heaven, eternity, all of it is simply knowing God, where Jesus went. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You can experience eternity right now, right here because of what Jesus came to do and what Jesus accomplished. He says, eternal life is that they may know you, the only true God, because God, you are holy. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. It reminds us that Jesus is uncreated. He is eternal. And he goes on and on and on and prays for his disciples. And not just his disciples back then, but he prays for people throughout all of human history that they would come to know God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Spirit. I'd love for you to read John 17. And he prays in this beautiful picture of this relationship. He ends with John 17, 25. Righteous Father, some translations say, Holy Father, the world does not know you, but I know you. And these, my disciples, they know you, and they know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them and I will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. As we wrap up this sermon series on the Trinity of God the Son, God the Spirit, of God the Father, this community of one that has existed for all of eternity, Jesus' prayer, the last thing that he prays in a significant and a lengthy way that they overhear is all about you, all about me experiencing what it means to intimately be in that community of one, He says, God, I pray that they would know you, that I would be in them, and that they would be in us. And the remarkable thing is that after Jesus was crucified, after he rose from the grave, after he sent the reign of the Father, he gave the Holy Spirit, as it says in the New Testament, the spirit that God has given us gives us a spirit, not of slavery, but a spirit of adoption, where we can cry out to God, Abba, Father. That word Abba is an Aramaic term. It is the most intimate phrase in the Aramaic language of a relationship of a child to a father. That's the type of intimacy that the Spirit of God enables us to have through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Tim Keller gives us an illustration in many of his sermons. I've heard it many times. Uh, Let me say it this way. I want you to imagine perhaps the most powerful person on the planet. That's different people whom uh, you might debate over. Let's say that that most powerful person on the planet happens to be the president of a nation, for example. And imagine that that president has a very busy schedule. And it's really impossible to just walk right in to, to get a seating with the president of a nation. You have to be a certain somebody. You have to measure up. You have to be worthy. You have to get on the calendar. But there are people, very few subset of people, who can just charge into that office crying, Daddy! And that president of the nation will receive them always with open arms because of that relationship. And if anybody else barges into The office of the president of a nation, unannounced, uninvited, not measured up. They're not received. They're shot. They're tackled. They're taken into custody. The relationship you have with the God, the creator, the sustainer of the cosmos is as a child who can always run towards God and know that that God has open arms embracing you, receiving you, loving you, not because of who you are, but because of what Christ has done for you and that you have received, and God looks at you in Christ and Christ in you and says, "Behold, you're my beloved child." And we can cry out in response, "Abba, Papa, Daddy, Father." This relationship is a relationship that God longs for you to have. It's why our ministry exists that we would make God known as we collectively, not just the staff, not just the pastoral team, not just the elders, that we as a community of faith around the globe would follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone, that our identity would come from the Father, our security would come from the Father, our provision would come from the Father, and that we would move out of this world as ambassadors that shares the heart of that loving Father. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your love, and I thank you that you have revealed to us the intimacy of your relationship in the Godhead. You describe that relationship as a son to a father. And this remarkable, mysterious truth where human language and human relationships break down and yet you you enter in, you accommodate to us a cosmic understanding in a common way that we can understand and yet you set us aside for a holy purpose, to be a holy people adopted into your family. So would we be people that acknowledge you carrying us, correcting us, comforting us, having adopted us. And may we be people that bless your heart in how we live and how we love and communicate your heart to this broken and hurting world. In Jesus' name I pray and we say together, amen.